continue our study in the book of Acts, chapter 18. And in this particular study, what we're going to see is Paul is going to uh, arrive in the city of Corinth. Now, before we... um, begin our study, instead of beginning with the book of Acts, I'd, I'd, I'd like to begin with the book of 1 Corinthians. I'd like to read a passage out of 1 Corinthians that I believe will be very helpful to, to us as we look at Paul's ministry in Corinth. And so I want to read for you, and I think I have it on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Listen to... Um, Actually, this is verses 1 through 3. And this is Paul talking to, speaking with the Corinthians, writing to the Corinthians, um, and explaining a little bit about himself when he arrives in Corinth. And he says this, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. He goes on, and I'm just going to pause there for a moment and make, just a, make an observation and then ask a question. And, and my, my first observation is, notice how Paul describes himself. This is probably a way that none of us would describe Paul. If I were to ask you, give me a, an adjective, describe Paul for me, we would probably say something along the line, bold. Fearless, faithful, steadfast, type A personality, something along those lines. Paul describes himself with none of those terms when he arrives in Corinth. Rather, he describes himself as weak, as fearful, as trembling. Adjectives which probably none of us would describe Paul as. But when Paul comes to Corinth, he's like going, man, I'm coming in weakness. I'm coming in fear, and I'm coming with much trembling. So that's my first observation. And then the question is, what would raise such an alarm? On, for what reason would Paul have such a concern? For what reason would Paul come into Corinth resolved to preach only Christ and the cross? Because he says, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Which is a little bit different because when he was in Athens, as as Nelson um, so ably informed us last week, Paul was probably one of the most unique characters in Christian testimony in that he was well trained in lofty speech. He was trained in rhetoric. He could come with lofty speech and great wisdom, and he did in Athens. And when he comes to Corinth, he says, I'm not coming with lofty speech. I'm not coming with great wisdom. I'm coming in fear and in trembling. So my question is, on what basis, why would Paul resolve to preach Christ only and the cross? And I'm going to give, there are probably many answers, but let me suggest or put forth two that I think will be important for our study today. And they revolve around the, the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a, uh, a city of, of great wealth. It was a city of great wealth, it was a city of great culture, and a city of great prestige. In fact, when you read Paul's two letters to the Corinthians, 
you will certainly get the, uh, the sense of an intellectual arrogance. In fact, Paul even condemns in 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul condemns the Corinthian church saying, um, you know, you tend to lift up those who uh, promote themselves and make much of themselves and uh, come across as intellectually superior. And then when I come to you, you treat me as, uh, as not worthy of the respect of these, quote, super apostles. They take advantage of you. They rip you off. They harm you. And you love it so as though, oh, look at how lofty and great they are. They're charging us this high price. They must have something important to say. I come to you and preach free and you say it must be worthless. Your arrogance is evident. And this is, Corinth was a, an intellectual, an intellectually arrogant, proud place. It was filled with wealth. It had two coasts, so you could uh, access two major ports. Culture from all over the world, it was a melting pot. Paul says, I come to preach Christ and Him crucified. You see, the cross undermines human pride. It undermines human pride and arrogance. It declares us bankrupt with nothing to contribute. I come fearful and in trembling because I am going to preach a message that is going to confront your, your citywide pride. And I know that there will be pushback. But it's not the only issue that Paul will face in Corinth because Corinth was known for its immorality. In fact, immorality is synonymous with Corinth, where people would indulge every hedonistic desire. But the cross, Christ crucified, is a call to repentance and holiness, and those who reject his moral demands will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm coming and preaching Christ to a very hedonistic culture, and it's going to run counter to your your desire for self-pursuit because... My message is lay down your life and take up your cross. I guess you could say if Athens, when Paul was in Athens, kind of an intellectual center, you might describe Athens perhaps as Oxford today and Corinth as Las Vegas. That might be a fair comparison. So Christ and the cross are a stumbling block to the proud and the sinful. Paul arrives in weakness, fear and trembling, resolved to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. So this now kind of sets the foundation of where we are going to go today. So if you will, join me and follow along as I read in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, 
and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they had opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so we begin with Paul arriving in, in Corinth, which is right here. So this is Paul's uh, missionary journeys. Uh, this is his second missionary journey. We actually have maps in the back of both his first and second missionary journey. Pick those up. Yep, Evan's got one. So he's been traveling. We've been over, kind of going up here. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, um, all the way down. He sailed on down to Athens. That where, that's where we were last week. And now he's just jumped over here to Corinth. And um, so Paul arrives in Corinth with fear and trembling and weakness. And God provides for him. It's amazing that in this condition and in this state, um, Paul arrives and God provides for him. And he provides for him by way of brothers and sisters in Christ. Two of the, quote, many people that Jesus has in the city of Corinth. You'll recall when, uh, as, when I read the text um, that Paul had a vision. And in the vision, Jesus said to him, I have many people in this city. I'm going to unpack that as we go along. But I think these are two of the many people that, Paul, uh, that Christ has in the city. And they're there for, to help Paul and Paul to help them. Now, the reason why this is important, at first I... I there are a couple of passages in this, or a couple parts of this particular passage of text that I, I ask myself, why this is here? Well, I ask that all the time, every text I get, why is this here? But this is one because Aquila and Priscilla are not integral to the rest of the, the text today. We'll see them, they become important later on, but it's, it seems um, interesting that Luke would introduce them to us at this point. And so I think there are a couple of reasons why we would find their introduction here very important. First of all, Luke now introduces us to these giants of the faith. Priscilla and Quilla truly are giants in the faith. And Paul forms a very close friendship with these two individuals. They begin to serve together in Corinth and they are co-laborers in the gospel. We'll see that they're going to travel with Paul to Ephesus 
Um, we'll see that in, in, in a couple of weeks. And in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla establish a church, or at least host a church in their house. They become um, the, the church that is established in Ephesus begins to meet at the house that Aquila and Priscilla either own or rent or staying at. Eventually, Aquila and Priscilla go back to Rome, which is interesting. We see this, um, and again, they have a church in their home. We see this in Romans chapter 16. And then another interesting place we see the names of Aquila and Priscilla crop up is at the end of 2 Timothy, which is, I think, a fascinating place to see their names. Because if you'll recall in 2 Timothy, this is Paul, probably Paul's last letter. Paul's about, about ready to die. And he knows it. This is it. And when he sends out greetings, basically he says, man, I'm going to die. This is pretty much the end. I've run the race. I've finished the course. There's laid up for me a treasure in heaven. And he goes on and talks about that. And then he says, oh, and greet Priscilla and Aquila. These are really important people in the lives of Paul. They, they, they don't necessarily minister together all the time, but they seem to be on the same wavelength, doing the same thing. And so these are two of the many people that Christ has in the city. And one of the things we, we want to point out is that ministry is never done alone. I shouldn't say that. Ministry is not usually done alone. The Christian life is not a solo life. It was never meant to be a solo life. In other words, God places other people in our lives for our mutual benefit. Paul became a great benefit to Aquila and Priscilla and they to him. They weren't just, they just didn't have an affinity for tent making or gospel sharing, but they became friends. They became co-laborers, planting churches, establishing churches, growing people in the faith. We're going to see Aquila and Priscilla help grow a young man, or I think a young man by the name of Apollos, and help him grow. He's got some kind of wonky theology, and they help straighten him out and bring him into the faith and help, uh, help him to hone his message. Ministry is not done alone. There's not one thing that happens in this church that's done because by, by me alone. Everything here happens because of other people. So that's the first kind of observation and maybe important reason why we see um, this couple mentioned at this point. But here's another thing that's interesting to me. And that is that the gospel is already in Rome. Think about that. The gospel is already in Rome. Aquila and Priscilla, some people uh, might, might not hold this view, but I think it's, it, it seems evident that at this point Aquila and Priscilla are Christians. And Claudius expelled... Here's what happens. Aquila and Priscilla are in Rome, says Italy, and they're expelled out of the country, they're exiled out of the country because in 49 A.D., there was a controversy. It was during the reign of Claudius, and during the reign of Claudius in 49 AD, according to the historian Suetonius, he tells us this. He says that there is this controversy, and riots began to break out over a man by the name of Crispus. Suetonius spelled it Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, and sometimes it was understood as Christus, as we would say it. But most scholars are pretty well convinced 
that there is a controversy amongst the Jews over a man by the name of Christus in Rome. And because of this controversy, um, and because of the riots that were taking place, Claudius says, all of y'all, out of here. Remember, at this point, Christianity is still considered a sect of the Jews by the Romans. And so, he's not saying, well, you, you're Christians and you're Jews, you're all Jews, now out of here. And he kicks them all out. And so, what's interesting to me is that a civil disturbance over Christ prompts the expulsion. But what's really interesting to me is that the gospel has arrived in Rome. This is 49 A.D. This is like maybe 19 years after the resurrection of Christ. Maybe less. So then my next question is, how did the gospel get to Rome? Paul hasn't been there. Peter didn't go there. None of the apostles went there. How did the gospel get to Rome? By just regular folks. Regular, everyday tradesmen and craftsmen. You'll remember on the day of Pentecost, people from all over the world were there hearing the gospel. And people from all over the world were converted that day. And if you go back and read Acts chapter 2, you will see that on the day of Pentecost, there were people from Rome. They heard the gospel. They were converted under the preaching of Peter and they go home. And they take the gospel. And there is no apostle, there is no super Christian there, just men and women who are loving Christ, doing business, and when they get home, they start talking about what happened in Jerusalem. What happened to you? You should have been there. These guys started proclaiming, these guys who don't know foreign languages are speaking in foreign languages, declaring the glory of Christ. It was an amazing thing. And 3,000 people heard a, or thousands of people heard a message, a message like I've never heard from a guy who's untrained, a fisherman. His name was Peter. And, he, and he'd walked with Christ, but he, he spoke the most amazing message about a Christ who died for my sins and rose again on the third day. And it was demonstrated by them being able to speak languages that we've never understood. And my heart was, spurt, was on fire and I confessed my sins and I've been released. And I'm just telling you, that's what happened. The gospel is in Rome because just regular folks take it there. That's how the gospel spreads doesn't necessarily spread only because of super apostles and preachers and famous people and guys who have big name brand ministries. It spreads because of folks like you and me, school teachers and, and craftsmen and tradesmen and, and electricians and, and homemakers and students. That's how the gospel spreads. And in 49 AD, gospel is in Rome. So Paul is in Corinth, and it says that he reasoned every Sabbath. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. I love that. Every Sabbath. Paul's, like I said, how would you describe Paul? Well, one way you would describe him is persistent. Every Sabbath, Paul gets up, I'm going to the synagogue, and I'm going to reason from the scriptures that the Christ is Jesus. Paul, I think we can say that he's just a persistent man, but I think more importantly, what we see is Paul understands the life and death um, importance of his message. 
His message is not just, let me persuade you to a different philosophy that's going to make your life better. Let me persuade you about how you can have your dreams fulfilled. Let me persuade you on how you can overcome depression or how you can um, have better self-esteem or anything like that. There was plenty of that around. There was plenty of distractions in the Las Vegas of the ancient world. You want to feel good about yourself? There was a purveyor somewhere along the streets who could make you feel good about yourself. Paul understands that my message isn't about that. My message is life and death. I'm persistent not because I'm bullheaded. I'm persistent because if you don't believe, you will die. That's what he understands. If you do believe, you will live. I'm persistent not because I think I have a better alternative to other alternatives. I'm persistent because life and death. You are enslaved to your sins and you will die in your sins and you will be judged by a holy God or you will repent of your sins and you will stand just before that holy God. I'm persistent because I understand the import of what I'm saying. Every Sabbath, there he is. And you might think that could get wearying after a while. And um, every Sabbath, hearing the same thing, people say, well, here comes that guy again. And then Luke tells us that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. So remember, Paul had left Silas and Timothy back um, in the region of Macedonia, and they come bringing good news. Let me t- let's describe what happens when Paul and Silas show up. First of all, we'll see from First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, uh, chapter three, verses five through ten. Um, listen to Paul's account of their arrival. This is what he says. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He's writing the Thessalonians. He's going, man, I feared that the tempter had tempted you and you'd strayed from the faith and I wanted to learn about your faith. And now, verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you're standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see your face, may see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. I was so worried about you. When we left, we got run out of Thessalonica, and I was so worried about you. But I sent Timothy back up, and I was hoping that the tempter hadn't tempted you. And now Timothy has come. And he's told us, no, no, you're doing well, that the Lord is blessing you and growing you and your faith is strong and you continue to have a great love for us. Another person that God has provided for Paul in the city of Corinth is the person of Timothy who comes bringing good news of the Thessalonians. But that's not all. Paul also not only received good news from Thessalonica, but um, he also received financial support. 
I also received financial support, and we see this in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, and then I'll turn over to Philippians. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, And when I was with you, he's talking to the Corinthians, When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in, in any way. In other words, Paul became a tent maker when he went to a Corinth. He wasn't going to burden the church to pay his expenses. But when the brothers came from Macedonia, they brought a gift. They brought a financial gift. And we see this also then in the book of Philippians. When Paul is writing to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 4 through 14, we see this. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my need once again. And so we see Paul in Corinth receiving both encouragement and financial support from the people in Macedonia. So at this point, I believe Paul stopped being a tent maker and he was full-time supported gospel minister. Now, that's interesting information, but I think the bigger point that we should um, bring out is that, once again, when we are converted, we are placed into a body. And in the body, we need one another. Sometimes we might needle one another, but we need one another. Paul needed the brothers and sisters in Philippi. He needed the brothers and sisters in, in Thessalonica. He needed these people to help him, and he helped them. And he needed to hear from Timothy. He needed to hear from Silas. They needed to bring him news, good or bad. But we need one another. And Paul has, or I'm sorry, God has given the Philippians and the uh, and the Thessalonians to help Paul in his ministry, which, by the way, we, we understand that in Philippi and Thessalonica, they were dirt poor. The Christians there were heavily persecuted. They were dirt poor, and we read in Second Corinthians that they gave beyond their ability. And then, here's the interesting thing, they begged to give more. This isn't just simply information for the sake of information. It is showing how the body of Christ needs the body of Christ. That's why he didn't place us alone. He just didn't say, go out there and do it. You're on your own. Good luck. I know you'll do well. I believe in you. He places us in a body. We need one another. The body is important to one another. Um, that's why it's a body. We need the arms and we need the legs and we need the fingers and the fingernails and all of those things. And so Paul is in Corinth in fear and much trembling. But the body of Christ comforts him. He gives him two co-workers, Aquila and Priscilla, and then he brings in Timothy and Silas who encourage and strengthen him and let him know, man, the churches that we planted, they're doing well. They're growing. They're loving Christ and they love us. So Paul is encouraged. And then I find it interesting. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied by the word, or with the word, and I almost thought, duh, when they arrive, what's Paul doing? He's occupied with the word. What else is he going to be doing? Right? I guess, as Nelson told us last week, he's going to be preaching. I guess he's either going to be occupied with the word or preaching the word. He's going to be doing something. But he isn't going to be just sitting around going, oh, I hope Timothy and Silas get here soon. I 
We can hang out. Play some video games. No, I'm occupied with the Word. And he's occupied that the Christ of Jesus, Paul reasons and he testifies. Paul is absorbed, that idea occupies, he's absorbed with the Word. And he's proclaiming the Word, he's teaching that the Christ is Jesus. And there are two responses to Paul's message that the Christ is Jesus. He's in the synagogue, he's reasoning from the scriptures, and his two responses, the first response is that of rejection. What? People reject the gospel? Yes. Not everybody believes. You learned that also last week. He's opposed and he's reviled. That is, he's verbally slandered. And look what Paul does. He shakes out his garment. This is a symbolic act. We see this also in Nehemiah. It is symbolically indicating that he will have nothing more to do with him. He shakes out his garment and he says, that's enough with you. We also see Jesus said, listen, if you go to a village or a town or a house and they reject you, shake off the dust of your feet and basically say, not even the dust of this town is going to go with us. This is a pure rejection. So Paul shakes off his garment, and he says, I have nothing more to do with you. And then listen to what he says. Listen very carefully to what he says. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. Think about that. Your blood be on your head. I'm innocent. Paul is not just speaking harsh words. He is speaking in the synagogue. They know exactly what he's saying. And what he's saying comes directly out of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 4 through 6, and also in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. I'm going to read those verses because they are important to understand what Paul is saying. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 4 through 6, this is what we read. It actually should be 33, I think. I think it's 34. No, 4 through 6. I'll go up and read a little bit. I'll start with from verse 2. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, And if he, the watchman, sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet, does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Paul is saying, I am the watchman. And the sword is coming, and I have given you fair warning. I am innocent. Your blood be on your own head. And then we see this the exact same thing over in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is what we 
we read, Son of man, I have made you a watchman of the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked of his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Paul is saying, I have warned you. The sword is coming. I have warned you. And the blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. I'm the watchman. The sword is coming. I've warned you about that. Um, And you have spurned the, the words of the watchman. The blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. The sword is coming. I've warned you, but you have not listened. Well, that begs the question, who is the enemy that Paul is warning them of? And the answer is frightening. Because the enemy that God is warning them about is God Almighty. God Almighty is coming to judge the living and the dead. God Almighty is coming, and when He appears in judgment and wrath, I will be innocent. See, I warned you that He was coming. Not only did I warn you that He was coming, but I communicated to you His terms of peace. He's coming, and he is coming to judge the living and the dead, but he has also extended a peace treaty. And I extended those terms to you. And in the peace treaty is that you will repent of your sins, call upon the name of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, took your place, bore your penalty, and and will impute his righteousness to you. You will live. If you accept those terms of peace, when God arrives, you will stand firm holy and blameless before Him. If you reject those terms of peace, you will be judged and condemned. I have warned you. The sword is coming. I'm innocent. The blood be on your own head. I warned you of His coming. I've communicated terms of peace. I know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That's what I came bringing you. Christ and Him crucified. If you spurn it, you're guilty of your own blood, not me. I did what God called me to do. So the first response was rejection, but Paul says, I'm innocent. The second response was, um, or another part of that is that he says, then I'm going to go to the Gentiles. If you, the Jews, are going to um, spurn the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, then I will turn to the Gentiles. I want us not to take this too far because Paul does not change his mission. In other words, in chapter in, in verse 19 of this passage, and then over in chapter 19, verse 8, and 28, uh, verse 17 through 24, Paul is still preaching to the Jews, but it means that his efforts in Corinth are going to concentrate elsewhere. What a sad day. What a sad day. The gospel comes, we reject it, and then it goes. The watchman leaves the city and goes and guards another place. So the first response was rejection. I would pray today that you not reject the message of the gospel. Second response was reception. Some people listened and heard. They went to the house, went next door to the house of a God-fearer, and it appears that God-fearer became a believer but um, we're not exa- 
not exactly sure, but we do talk, Luke does bring up an individual who's a ruler of the synagogue, and his name is Crispus, and he was a Jew. He and his household believed in the Lord and was baptized. In fact, really interesting, or at least it's interesting to me, so I'll share it with you. In verses, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I baptize Crispus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Paul says this, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. There, there's a big controversy. It's like people are saying, well, I'm a Paul, I'm a, you know, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Peter, I'm a follower of this person. And Paul says, listen, that's no big deal. In fact, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you because then you start thinking, oh, well, I'm, you know, Paul baptized me. Is there some sort of magic formula? I didn't baptize anybody except Crispus and a guy by the name of Gaius who we don't know who that is. And in the household of Gaius, or in the household of Crispus, we learn that his entire household comes to faith. He and his household believe in the Lord and they are baptized. One of the things we want to point out, once again, we see it over and over again in the book of Acts. Hearing, belief, baptism. That's the kind of the trajectory. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. There is no conversion outside of the proclamation of the gospel. From the proclamation of the gospel, people believe. And their first act as a believer is to be baptized. They are joined in union with Christ, a public display that we are now in union with Christ. And then it goes on, it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with the entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized That's a very general statement. Many believed and were baptized. Let me read to you who came to faith in Corinth. Because Paul tells us explicitly, Luke tells us generally, but Paul's very explicit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I came to you knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified, and you, inhabitants of Corinth, all of those descriptors, all of those lifestyles. You heard the message of the cross and you believed and you were washed and you were set apart and you were declared not guilty and you became believers because I preached Christ and Him crucified. That's it. The message of the cross penetrates darkness and saves men from the wrath of God even men like described in 1 Corinthians. Those types of people, yes, even those types of people, the gospel can penetrate and bring salvation, not only to those types of people, but their families as well. Paul comes in fear and trembling and weakness, but I got a message. And while I may be weak, the message is powerful. Because the Christ who rose from the dead is the one 
to whom empowers all of this. Well then, one other thing that Paul gets while he's there again, he's there in fear and trembling, and Christ has provided for him um, two good friends, two great co-workers, and then Christ appears to him himself. There's a great assurance. If you're a little concerned, it's like God shows up. And says to him in the vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. A number of things to be said. First of all, don't be afraid. I came to you in fear. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Wow, that's awesome. And don't be silent. I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. That had to be great news. Paul is probably just now recovering from his wounds that occurred to him at Philippi or in Thessalonica. And he knows wherever I go, I get beat up. And I'm going to preach the gospel. And Christ is saying, I'm going to give you a reprieve. No one here in Corinth is going to attack you physically. That had to be good news. I have many people in this city. Uh, Let me just also... I may not need to do this, but let me just clarify. When, Paul, when Jesus says, um, I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, first of all, that was a, um, for Paul in that particular situation. Because we know Paul later in other places, people did attack him. But in Corinth, you're going to be safe. So it's, it's a very specific promise for a very specific place and a specific time for the Apostle Paul so let's keep that clear. The next thing is, please don't adopt this as your life verse. Okay? Because it's not, it doesn't apply to you. Okay? You can say, oh, my life verse is that no one will ever harm me. All right? Don't do that. That's not the context of this. This is not to be adopted generally for all of us to walk out of here. Oh, Jesus said no one will ever attack me to harm me. I pray that never happens. I just don't know if you can say God has promised that to me. He promised it to Paul for a very specific place at a very specific time. Okay, we've cleared that, right? We'll move along. Because I'm really interested in this next part. I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And that just struck me. I have many people in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. Now, that got me thinking. Who are the people in the city of Corinth? Who are God's people right then and there in the city of Corinth? Is there some sort of subversive underground church going on that Paul is unaware of? The answer is no, probably not. Or is there another group of Christians um, that have come to know Christ through some other apostle or some other um, traveler? Or No. Who are these people that are in the city? I have many in this city who are my people. And here we see the doctrine of election. These are God's people who don't know yet that they are God's people. These are God's people who have yet to be converted. This is why he says, keep on speaking. Keep on speaking. Why? Because I have a lot of people in this city who will be converted under your preaching, 
the Christ calls my people. Even though at this moment they are walking in rebellion to me, they are pagan idolaters, they are the group in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Christ is saying, these are my people. I have set my love upon them. They are the elect, and they will hear you, and they will believe. We see this, especially over in Ephesians, of course, being maybe one of the classic places where we see this taught so explicitly. Oops, wrong way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. When were we chosen? It was before the foundation of the world. God is saying, I got people in this city. You keep preaching. The gospel will save them. And of course, we see this also very explicitly in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29. Um, This is a passage many of you are very familiar with. But he says this, uh, actually verse, yeah. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. I have people who I have set apart from eternity. And the ones that I have set apart, I am going to call. And by the way, how is he going to call them? Through Paul's preaching. And the call will, will be justified, and the justified will be glorified. Keep on speaking, Paul. i got a lot of people in this city. There's going to be a fruit to your preaching. What a great word. i got a vision. And Paul, God says, you're not going to get beat up, and there's going to be fruit in your ministry. I have my people already here. They're waiting. I've gathered them in this city. They're waiting for you, Paul, to proclaim the gospel. Right on. I can do that. You don't know them. I do. You preach. You, there's not, you're not going to walk around Corinth and see people with, you know, I don't know, a mark that says that these are going to be converts. You don't know who they are. God knows. I know exactly who they are. You keep preaching. I'll bring them in. So, this is a great assuring word from the risen Christ. Well, Paul goes on trial again, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. There's some very interesting things, but I'm going to just kind of breeze past this. Um, Paul goes on trial again. I do want to point out that this isn't contrary to the previous promise where Jesus says, no one will attack you or harm you. Um, Paul's not attacked, nor is he harmed, but he is on trial. And it's interesting who's on tri- who, who judges him. It's a guy by the name of Gallio. And I believe that Gallio is one of the people that God will use to further um, God's purposes. So you might ask, well then, is Gallio a Christian? No, Gallio is not a Christian, never was a Christian, never became a Christian to all of our understanding. And we know a lot about Gallio. Historically, we know a lot about this guy. But he served God's purposes. This is one of God's people in the city of Corinth who is going to be used to help the church, even though he's not a believer. We know that he was the proconsul in, um, uh, in Corinth. 
and we can date his time. He probably arrived no later than 49 A.D., and he left no later than 54 A.D. More likely than not, Gallio was proconsul from between year 49 and 50. He was probably there at 51 A.D. at the latest. We know a lot about him, which there's a lot of... uh, I'm not going to go into that, but so we know a lot about... Gallio, and he's one of the people that God uses to further his, his purposes. Here's another thing we know about him. He was a raging anti-Semite. He hated Jews. He just despised Jews. But he does provide some legal protection for the church. In fact, um, because of his, some of his decrees, the church had relative peace in Corinth for about 10 years until um, Nero becomes emperor. But the church has some some legal protection, and a lot of it comes from Gallio's decision. Basically, Gallio um, hears the charge by the Jews. Paul's getting ready to speak, and here's a guy who cuts Paul off. Shut up. I got something to say. And Gallio speaks and says, listen, this is just a bunch of religious words. You guys are arguing over names and dates and places. I'm not into that. Leave it alone. We're done. I don't want anything to do. Paul Gallio was not in favor of Christianity. He wasn't opposed to Christianity. He was completely indifferent to it. He just wanted to keep the peace. But God uses Gallio. He's one of those people in the city that Christ is going to use to bring about his purposes. And so there's relative peace so that Paul can preach the gospel and those people whom God has elected will come to know Christ and He's going to be able to work with Timothy and Silas and Aquila and Priscilla and churches are going to be planted in Corinth. And Gallio, an unbeliever, is going to play a role in that. Folks, God uses all kinds of people. That doesn't mean he saves everybody, but he used Pharaoh, didn't he? He used Pontius Pilate, didn't he? And he used Satan to bring about his purposes. God's purposes will be done. He will bring them about through unbelievers if he needs to. He used Cyrus. He called Cyrus my anointed one. Cyrus was never a believer. But Cyrus accomplished God's purposes and Gallio accomplishes God's purposes. He opens the door. He creates a relative peace so that Paul and his companions can preach the gospel in Corinth and plant churches in Corinth. This is God's doing. God says, I got a lot of people. Some are believers, some are not. Doesn't matter to me. My purposes get done. I'll conclude with this. Um, First observation is that to remind ourselves that we don't walk alone. That God places us in a body for mutual support. Look at all the support that Paul is getting. These people are being used by God to help Paul in his ministry. And Paul is being used to help them in their ministry. This is mutual support. It all comes from Christ. We are a body. We are a body because Christ has placed us here and you are not here for no purpose and for no reason. You're here to help support the body of Christ, to strengthen, to encourage, to bless. And there are a variety of different ways. Some people do it through one way. Some people do it through another way. But they're all important ways to support the body. We need each other. And, and when we're not here, there's a lack. The body is lacking. It's missing some of its members. The other observation I want to point out is that we are watchmen and that we warn of the sword. 
So I pray that we would be diligent and hence innocent. I pray that we would be like Paul. I'm innocent. If they reject the message, blood be on your hands. I'm innocent. I've warned and I've extended terms of peace. I told you that the wrath of God is coming. Here are the terms of peace. You can receive them by Crispus and his household and they believe and are baptized and they're saved or not. But I'm innocent. There are many people in our area keep on speaking. Many people, I don't doubt for a moment that in Pine and in Strawberry and in Payson and in the, the regions around us and the Tonto Reservation the Coles Ranch area. There are people, God's people, waiting to hear the gospel. They're already God's people. They're waiting to hear the gospel. They'll hear the gospel, call upon the name of the Lord, and be saved. So keep on speaking. Keep on speaking. Father, we come before you this day, and we're grateful that you have uh, made us your own. And we one day... Paul says in Ephesians, chosen from before the foundation of the world, but one day the gospel made sense and we called upon the name of the Lord and we were saved. I pray, Father God, that we would not be lax in declaring the goodness of Christ. That we would preach Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because there are many who will come to faith through that preaching. Help us to be bold. Help us to be strong. But maybe most of all, Lord, I pray that we'd be weak. Maybe even a little fearful. Maybe with some trembling. And that we would lean heavily upon you and upon your spirit to do what we in our weakness and fearfulness and trembling cannot do. But you in your power and grace and mercy do so well. So have mercy upon us and enable us, Lord God, to love one another, to walk with one another, and to proclaim your word faithfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.